You may have a seat. We are in a series called So You've Heard, and we're looking at Jesus' teaching, and uh, particularly a section where Jesus teaches on six areas of, of life that we all are, are part of and experience and interact with. And before I get into where we're going this week, I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus had said to these people before he started this teaching. Because if we don't have the context of what Jesus was saying, when, when we start going through how Jesus hit specific aspects of life, it could start to just feel like rules. Don't do this, don't do this, it gets really confining, don't step out of line. But what we have to realize is when, when the, the people that were there, who were there listening to him, the reason they came is they, they were attracted to him as he was announcing, there's good news, good news. In the Bible it says, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. I think the way that we would understand it, God's ways, God himself is available. We have access to him. He is here. He's not way out there. He is here. So that's good news. So repent. Kind of a churchy word, or I guess not, because it's Jesus. Jesus is free church. Change the way you think. Change the direction to line up with the reality that God is here, that his ways are best, that he can help us live into his ways. He starts with that. This is good news, because there's a bunch of religious people who think that they've been, they've been good, they're trying to be good, they never feel good enough, and they, and God, I don't know if I'd ever get to God. I mean, the really religious people could get to God, but I don't know if I can. And all of a sudden, someone says, and it seems true, and it rings in our souls, he's here. He's for us. He's, he's accessible. So change the way you think, and now he's going to say, here's how you live in light of the fact that God's with you, that he can help you, that he knows what's best. And so to that group of people, which were Jewish people, who went to synagogue, who knew the Torah, who had the kind of religious things reinforced to them, he would say, so you've heard it said, don't murder. They all knew that. They all knew the Ten Commandments. They all knew the Torah. You heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. They all knew that. Another one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, don't lust. You've heard it said, if you give a woman a certificate of divorce, then you can divorce her. But I tell you, if you divorce the person in the way that you're doing the divorce, you're actually committing adultery and causing adultery. What was he getting at with his original group of people? Well, the good religious folks that everyone would say, they're the most religious people, they're the good people, including themselves, would say that. They've never murdered They've never committed adultery. If they were going to give, divorce their wife, they did it in the right way with the right piece of paper. And so Jesus says, so if you're going to be part of my kingdom and my kingdom is going to go through you, you don't consider yourself a really good person if you've never murdered, but you're mean and you're angry and you have contempt. And actually, those are the things that will lead to murder ultimately. And the way things were working there is men could divorce their, their wives for any and every reason, and women did not have access to jobs and things like that back then. And so they would say, well, 
oh, I want this woman now to be my wife. I, I would like her, and I'm married, and so what I'm going to do, I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm already lusting, thinking about it, but I'm going to go through, okay, I've got a right reason, I'm giving the right piece of paper to, to her, and now I'll divorce her, and she's out of luck, and I am still a good person. I've never committed adultery, and Jesus says, well, that's really adultery. I mean, if you're, you're already fantasizing over the woman, and you find a way to get out of your marriage, to get with, well, you've done adultery. But so what that was happening back then is if you had in the certain box and could check the list, then you're a really good person, which was easier for some than others. And it left good-hearted people feeling broken and beat down. And it left some people puffing out their chest, they're better than everyone else. And Jesus kind of reversed all that. He kind of reversed all that when he came. So it resonated with people. Now here's what I've been saying the last few weeks. I've been trying to point out that it's possible that those of us who go to church, who maybe call ourselves Christians, who, you know, we're not against God, you know, we're, we're good with God, we might be people who actually don't agree with Jesus. That because of the messages we get every day, because of the things that we've kind of grown up, the things, the way we interact, the way we communicate with each other, we think, well, I'm not against God, but we're actually not on God's side. And what Jesus says, we, really, we don't really jive with. And the easiest example is where he starts, anger. Jesus says, do not be angry. Don't stay angry. Don't feed anger. What do we hear all the time? At school, when we're talking about our friends or our teachers, Except for Mr. Peating, he's awesome. I always hear nothing but good about Mr. Peating. Anyway, it's what do we get when we're looking at our phones? When we're, it's like be angry. This should outrage you. Be against these people. It is just a constant message, including Christian people. But I mean, we're angry for the sake of God. For God's sake, we're angry, right? Because of all those bad people out there and the things they're doing, and we're good. We're, we're just as angry as they No intention. Now, Jesus, it's not like this is just like a little line, like, oh, yeah, I guess it's better not to get, it, get out of hand and fly off the handle. No, no, no. This is a message that goes throughout the Bible, and this is the longest area of life. This is where Jesus spent the most time, and it's where he started. If you're not going to get to the other things, you want to get at one thing that Jesus is teaching you on, change your way of life, do not be and stay angry. Later it says, when you stay angry, when you let the sun go down on your anger, when you just keep letting anger stew, you give the devil a foothold in your life. Jesus himself said, when you get angry and it turns into contempt and now you don't even, you don't even want to be around those blankety-blank people, now you're in danger of the hellfire, he says. If you have, it says, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, slander, all these things, because if you don't, you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's like there's two sides. There's the side that says anger is, you know, if you're angry and it's authentic, stick with it. Let it fuel you. Get other people to come with you. And that's the devil's side. And then there's Jesus' side, who forgives, who's gracious, who's kind. There are reasons to be angry. But the goal is love. Now, which side am I on? And I am usually right here. 
And it doesn't take much. I'm not talking about the evils of Ukraine and things like that. I mean, there's, there's some righteous anger things. I'm talking about like, oh, they looked at me wrong. Hmm. Well, if they looked at me wrong, well, then I guess I'm the... And I could just, until I started thinking on like, okay, I am going to choose right now not to be angry, even though they said that to me. Because if I don't, what happens if I'm easily angered, if I'm often angered, I become an angry person. I store up anger. It's bad for my health. It's bad for my relationships. It's bad. And that's what I've been trying to point out is one, without even realizing it, I think a lot of us are on the opposite side of Jesus. Jesus over here, I'm just, well, this is just natural. Like, this tells me I should be angry. Yes, the algorithms bring up the things that most make you angry that you've clicked on before because they know that's what people click on and they're trying to keep you on your phone. I'm going to say it again. You don't like Joe Biden? Well, that's what's going to come up on your phone. All the things of why you should hate Joe Biden and the Democrats. I hate him, hate him, hate him. You don't like Donald Trump? That's what's going to come up on your phone. The same thing is not going to come up on your phone and your, their phone. So that's, so you've heard, be angry. They're the problem. And then we hear Jesus saying, don't be angry. Don't stay angry. Don't have contempt for a people or group of people. Now you're, if you do, you're aligning with the accuser and the evil one. But he says it like this. It's best to not be angry. And the world says, you got to be angry. We're angry. We're angry. That was a sermon I gave four weeks ago. we got to move on. <laughs> but what I'm trying to paint a picture is, A, we don't always agree with Jesus. And then, B, I think Jesus is probably right. And so, C, we got a choice. A lot of times I don't feel like I have a choice. I'm just angry. Just angry. I'll just try. It's... It helps. We're going to go today. we got to get today. I'm going to be quick on, or shorter than I've been on the past on, these, on this passage, which is on oaths. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So this is the reading of, of God's word. I was pleasantly surprised to see so many people are back after two weeks of talking about lust and divorce and living together and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe we're done here. But, you know, some of you probably weren't here the last couple of weeks, so you had no idea, and so here you are. You're just here for senior day. Um, so, uh, this week, it's like, sweet. I've never once been tempted to swear by Jerusalem or the earth or like, I'm in, we're good. There's no way. Let me very briefly kind of give a little sense of what was going on back then. Vows were more, more important to that group of people. They, they, they did this more often in a way that was meaningful in that culture that really just doesn't show up much in our, our world today. In the Bible, it's pretty clear, if you make a vow or an oath before the Lord, you need to keep it. 
In fact, if, you, if there's no longer a possibility for you to keep it, then you need to kill something. I mean, that's how they, you had to have a sacrifice, a lamb or a goat or something. You had to, you had to do that. There, there was a way in which this, they took it very seriously. So what happened over time is they started saying, well, you know, we'll make, they make a vow, and, and some, I swear by Jerusalem, uh, it's kind of like by something holy. I'm swearing by the gold of the temple. I'm swearing by something... And so it had somewhat the same effect, but what they would say is, but then it's not binding unless you use God's name. And they were kind of parsing out like, well, this is like a a minor league oath, which kind of counts, but not really. This is So the best way to give an example is, this is how it showed up today. I swear to God. Swear to God it happened. Swear to God. No, I swear to God I'm going to do it. I swear to God. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I I swear to God. Right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. But that's not true. Swear on my mother's grave. By the way, my mom's in the first row, never swore on her grave. I mean, she's alive, so it's really not time. But I'm never going to do it. But anyway, swear, swear, why do we, where did that come from? Where did the swear to God come from? What, what is the meaning, even if we just throw it out and we aren't going there? It is, I swear that this is true, or I swear that I'm going to do this, or God himself can deal with me. That's what it is. I swear this, and so we say it if someone isn't going to believe us. Then we try to, I swear that this is going to happen. Now, we may think we're just, oh, I just didn't mean, I was just saying, I was just joking around. The Bible does say some multiple places that we'll be judged for every careless word. I don't think that means God's going around like, oh, you slipped up on that one. But I do think it means our words matter. Our words shape reality. And when our words say, like, God, come and take a look. God, come and deal with me. We probably shouldn't do that flippantly. Some Christians have taken this where it says, you know, Jesus says don't swear at all to be like, well, you don't go into the courtroom and, and put your hand on the Bible, Right? But that would be like what Jesus was going against. Jesus was saying it's not just about like keeping the letter of the law rule. It's about what's the, what's the spirit behind it. And the spirit behind it is verbal manipulation. Jesus is saying when you're in the kingdom, you don't need to verbally manipulate people to get them to believe you or to get them to do what you say. You don't need to do that. He says the best way to get people to believe you is to be honest most of the time. Just be straightforward and be honest. Then you don't have to say swear to God because they believe you. Just let your yes be yes, your no, no. Now, we live in a world where we literally pay millions and millions. People get paid millions and millions of dollars to make people's yes mean no and no mean yes. Right? Spin doctors in our political world. The whole point is like, well, I know that politician A said this, but really it was because politician B did this, and so really, and, that, and that, that's every, and that's not just politicians anymore, that's like in the whole news media world too. So I was in a room with, with one of our senators, just like 15 of us, and we could ask questions, and I'm a polit- political science major, so uh, this person's a chairman of a committee. I asked a question. I said, well, I, I don't understand why you didn't do this because of the Constitution. This is Congress's role, and you're the chairperson. And they said, well, the other party 20 years ago, the other party 20 years ago 
they had a similar situation and they didn't do the same way. So I promised, I gave my word to the other party that if in four years the situation is reversed, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Four years later, the exact same situation came up. And I thought, and I kept seeing like, oh, it's going to pass. I don't know, how's this, how's this possible? Because this person, you know, he gave their word. Well, what happened is for the first time in many years, that person stepped down the year before and was no longer the chairperson. So I watched them in an interview where they asked, now how is it that you took this position four years ago, but now you're taking this position? And he said, well, I promised, because back then you said this. He said, well, I'm not the chairperson anymore. But he still voted the opposite way from four years earlier. I gave my word, and technically I kept it, but functionally I totally violated it. Now, if you figured out who that is, then you know which political party. And I would just say it's similar to the, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Now, I've covered both political parties. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. But that is, that is our world, and it's easy to get mad at those politicians. And some of us don't even care about government or politics, so this is just beautiful. Thank you that you're not talking about lust. All right, but... But the reality is, this is how we function in all kinds of ways. So when it was masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, it's like we try to pull out our ammo. Like, hey, you know what? Well, uh, Sunshine Susie said on Facebook that this is what's true. And, do, 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 and, they, and they, there's done, been a ton of research on this. Ton of research. Right. There's been a ton of research on both sides, and if you agree with it already, you believe that research. If you don't agree with it, you don't believe that research, but you still use the research to try to convince somebody else. Now we're getting closer to what Jesus is talking about. Instead of saying, I'm on a task force, or was, thank God it's over. You know, Ken Locke, are we putting money at Ken Locke or Randy Wilson? And I'm not in the social media world, and I come to task force meeting number three, and I just hear like, oh, I guess people have been saying some stuff. And like, it's, maybe there's a lot of truth. There's not, people are just upset because they have been blasted, and some of it is not true. If we deal with just one thing, don't be angry, then it helps don't manipulate with your words. Don't speak falsely about people. Don't post falsely about people. It all works together. Now, again, some of you aren't into this. How about construction industry? If you do not think you're going to show up that week, just say, I'm not going to show up this week. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. I know I have a friend who's a construction person, and he said in business it was really hard because somebody would say to them, like, he'd be like, well, we can't get there this week. And they'd get really mad, and there'd be this pressure to be like, well, we'll try. But he'd just tell people, like, well, would you rather have me say we're probably going to be there and then not show up, or say we're not going to be there and then actually show up when we say we're going to be there? I, I mean, when I was going through construction stuff, that just drove me crazy. Hey, pastor, can I meet you with you this week? Oh, yeah, I think we can make that work. Wouldn't it be better to just say, it can't work this week. I'd like to try to make it work next week. Let our yes be yes or no, no. Eugene Peterson, who is the translator of the Message Bible, 
um, he was a, a pastor for, for 30 years before he went and taught in seminary. And anyway, as he retired, all kinds of pastors would write him. He would only write letters. I mean, he would type them, but he wouldn't do email and stuff. So you'd have to write letters. And Pete, he would have pastors come to his home in Montana where he and his wife Jan retired to, and they could come and stay with him for a couple days. Like they never met before. They'd write him, why don't you come stay with me? So when Collier, I heard him interviewed, he's his biographer, Eugene Peterson's biographer, and the question was, what, have you learned, what did you learn most from Eugene Peterson, or what's the takeaway that you most take from him? And he said, well, that he was comfortable just saying no. Well, first he said two things. One was that he was comfortable with a pause. So Eugene Peterson would ask him a question, and then wait for an answer. And at first he was like uncomfortable with like the extra 10, 15, 20 seconds of silence. Like this, is, this conversation is not going anywhere. But then he realized he could get a quick reaction. But with Eugene, he always got like a thoughtful response. The second thing was that he would just say no. So, you, so Wynn Collier met him, been writing letters to him, knew him well, and had been hearing from other people who didn't even know him as well that they would get to go to his house and they'd have a great time. He had a seri- like a couple weeks where he could be in the Montana area and he just wrote the letter, Eugene, could I, could I come out and stay with you and Jan just for a couple days? I would love that, get to know you better. And Eugene just wrote back, no, that won't work right now. That was it. Now for me, it's like, well, no, because I got this going on and this going on and this going on, and I got to make sure I got to get my whole explanation. And Eugene was like, no. Eventually, this guy spent more time at his cabin than anyone else uh, of the pastors, of the, any non-family member in the last years of his life. But he realized you don't always have to justify ourselves. And now we're getting to where this passage hits me the most. Do I need to always control what you think about me? Why I didn't do something why I am going to do something, why I think you, you need to know I'm right, or it wasn't my fault. Do I need to use, is that how I use my words? A lot of times it is. Have the worship team come up. So, this week, early on in this week, I had a couple quotes that I read that have been resonating with me. And all week long, I was trying to figure out how do I work them into the sermon. And um, then I got here this morning, and it just didn't quite work. And then I got here this morning, and we're in a circle, and as people shared every, the, what was going on in their life, it all matched this other thing. So rather than trying to work it in the sermon, I'm just going to end the message this way, thinking maybe this is just for me, maybe it's for someone else. So if you bring up the first quote from Dallas Willard, Grace is God acting in my life to accomplish what I cannot accomplish on my own. In all these things that Jesus is saying, this is what we should do, we need to try and engage and actually say, like, I'm going to try to be less angry. I'm going to try not to have to control people. But also, we just need to know God is here to help us. A lot of times I think of grace as if I've done something wrong, if I've done something wrong, then I need, you know, grace. I need somebody to be, you know, not give me what I deserve. That's a little bit more mercy than grace. I mean, it does fit in the grace category. Or when we think of biblical grace, we just think, 
Well, by grace we're saved. He forgave us for our sins. He died on the cross. That's true. God did act to give us forgiveness, to make us right with God, to give us life after death, and none of those things could we do ourselves. So that's grace. But let me tell you, in the Bible, grace is way more than just forgiveness for our sins. Grace is helping us in every area of life that we invite him into. Grace is helping us to be the kind of people who are freed from anger. Grace is helping us to be the kind of people that don't need to have the last word, that don't need everyone to agree with them and tell them they're right. Grace can help us to do that, and grace can help us in life itself. One other quote, and then I'll move us towards the close. These are both from Dallas Willard. What it means to be saved is to be living a life of interaction with Jesus. Sometimes we can think, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and so I'm saved, and I'm, and I'm going to heaven, and it's just like I have this thought, I agree with it, and I'll show up at church sometime, but then God's not actually even part of our life. The kingdom of heaven is available now. God is accessible now, and he wants to help us do things we can't do on our own. And when I think about why do I get angry, why do I manipulate people with what I say, I think a lot of it has to do with just, I feel pressure. I feel pressure. Does anybody else in this room feel pressure? Do young people in this room feel pressure to figure it out, figure out what they're supposed to be doing, who they're supposed to be? I mean, that's the message you get all growing up. Don't let anybody tell you what to be. Don't let anybody, you got to, with the underlying things, you got to figure it all out. So there's just pressure. If we're older, we can't do the same things we used to do. What does that mean? It can feel, it can feel depressing. It can feel confusing. There's pressure. If you're in the middle, just trying to make life work. You feel the pressure. Let me tell you. Can you put the, the first quote up again? Let me tell you how comforting it is to know that God is here. Not just in this room. He's here when we go. He's wherever you go, and every, he's willing to step into every, I'm crabby this morning. God, help me to live in a non-crabby way. I don't know how I'm going to get through this week. God, help me to get it through. I don't know what I'm going to do about my coworker. God, help me to get, get through. And to know he's here, and he wants to do it. Man, I think that is the message. I don't know why I even shared all the other stuff. I felt like I had to get through a sermon to keep a series going. The word of the Lord today is if you are feeling pressure, if you are feeling pressure, you need to know God is here and he is for you and he wants to help you. And so before we go, we are going to worship him or pray to him or whatever you want. But what I want you to know is he is here. Jesus made a way that he will help you. He is here. He is here and he isn't just staying here. He is going with you if you want him to come. If you want him to come, he is going with you. He wants life with you. That's the message. Let's pray.
God, thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. I thank you that it's not just that, though. I thank you that you're interested in every part of our life. I thank you that you care for where we are struggling. I thank you that we're never alone. You're always with us. I thank you that you're for us. I thank you that you care about the little things. So for just a few moments as we worship you, would you make it clear that you're here to each one of us in a way that we would still know you're with us even after we leave this place? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.